You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. If you have a Bible, please uh, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Let's start there. But before I read that, um, let me turn there myself for one. Uh, Before I read that, allow me to say this, that this church, one of the things that we we commit to together as a church is that we commit to learning together. So this is a learning community, meaning um, as we gather uh, on Sunday mornings, uh, we're learning, we're learning together from the scriptures, from God's word, what he desires to shape us in the community of his people. And so together we are learning. So we're going we're gonna to spend time in this and what we're going to try and commit to do is to, I just want to remind us of this, I know we know this, but we forget, to do what it says, okay, or be what it says. Like we're not reading it going, oh, that's just so pretty and cute or whatever, or that was compelling. But we're a community that goes, I, we want to learn together how to live under this. I have to say that because this is a pretty heavy text, I mean, we just got done talking about a couple weeks ago uh, husbands and wives and how they are to interrelate. And then uh, Peter talks about um, even slavery and how, what's that supposed to look like uh, being a Christian in that time and that, and that era, era. And it was a, those were heavy teachings. And what he does, if you think, well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a slave, I'm not, I'm not a husband, I'm not a wife, I'm, I'm out of those things. Peter just lumps everyone in and says, all of you. And so we're all under this together. So before we read, let me pray that God would give us hearts to obey, to learn and to obey, okay? It's a good thing to obey God. It's a beautiful thing. It's not constricting, it's liberating. I promise you, when you read this, you're like, I want to live into that. God, I pray together, we pray together that you would speak to us, Lord, that we would learn from you, that this would not be an exercise in futility, that we're just here listening to someone talk and we sing some songs. But by your spirit, God, as we gather and it turns into your holy temple, a thin space where heaven and earth meet, we pray as heaven and earth meet, we would be changed. We would be changed by you, God. And we submit ourselves under the power and beauty and authority of your scriptures. And we say, would you, would you apply them to our hearts? I will speak today, Lord, but only you can speak to truly can speak to hearts and change hearts. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my God and my Redeemer. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. So, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Before I start to read this, I want to let you know that this is what we are called to be. I can stand before you without a shadow of a doubt right now and say that these are not just words on a page, that these words that I will read to us today are words from God for us, this church, Reality San Francisco, today, that this is what he desires for every single person who calls this church home today, his community, his family, his people. So when I'm reading these things, I want you to think, I want you to think like this. I want, when I read these, like, I want you to think, I'm, I want to be that. I'm going to be that. That's what I'm supposed to be like. That's how God, if I call myself a Christian, we're, I'm supposed to be that. This is what God wants for reality San Francisco today. 
And I can tell you as I read this, without a hint of doubt, that this is for our community. So are you ready? Verse 8. You're probably like, not ready now. You're like, no, I'm scared. (laughs) Verse 8. Finally, all of you. Stop there. This means all of you. (laughs) All of you who call yourself a Christian or have taken communion and consider yourself a part of this community. If you follow Jesus, this is all of you. No one can slither out of this. No one can slip away from this. Every single one of you, this is who he's talking to. There's no one in here. No matter how educated you are, you're like, well, I can read this verse in the Greek. I don't care. (laughs) If you did, you would know it says all of you. How new you are to this community, like, well, I just got here like three weeks ago. I don't care. All of you, or how influential you are outside of this room, how rich you are, or how poor you are, or how unhealthy you are right now, or how tired you are right now, how stressed you are right now, or how busy you are right now, this is all of us. All of us. It doesn't matter who you are. All of us. If you hear me right now, say yes. Yes. Okay. Now you're in trouble because you don't know what I'm going to say next. (laughs) Finally, all of you. Be like-minded. Stop there. The best way to translate this right here, be like-minded, and by the way, I think that this right here, be like-minded, this could be, I almost did, made this word the whole sermon, but I cannot. But this right here, this word, like-minded, is probably the furthest thing away, I would say, to the modern Christian community, to the online Christian community, if you follow any Christian communal blogs, if you follow people that are Christian on Facebook, this is the antithesis of the Christian community. The Christian community today follows the way of our um, news cycle that wants like clicks and, and, and everyone to argue and everyone to fight and, and to throw in. They, the Christian community thrives on this right now and it's sickening. And it's tiring. I'm so tired of it. Be like-minded. It's throughout the scriptures, but we're here in 1 Peter. And this is what it says to us. Be like-minded. The best way to translate this is this. Be agreeable. Oh, my gosh. You're like, there's no way in the world I could be a Christian. Like, that is what it means to be in the Christian community? Like, I have to be agreeable? Yes, you do. Be agreeable. Or be harmonious. Or live in commonality. We are together. And I, I think it's really, I mean, this is a, a fairly large room. I mean, it's scary. This, so let's just break this down. As you're in your community or community groups that formalize or informalized, your community, your Christian community that you're living life with people, be like-minded. Be agreeable. Be harmonious. Have commonality. The idea of this is this. The idea is when you went into a Christian community, you would experience an alternate society. When you entered into a Christian community, you would experience an alternate society where you would not have to face the same kinds of pressures or insults or hostility that came from those outside the church. 
So you would go into work and there's this hostility, there's this pressure to perform, there's all this stuff where you feel so like you, you can't be yourself and, and, and you have all these pressures and there's this hostile environment when you come out as a Christian, like I'm a Christian and I follow Jesus and there's this hostility that's there. The Christian community is supposed to be when you get into that, that is gone. And there's people that are kind and loving and compassionate and sympathetic and that love you. It's supposed to be when you enter into a Christian community, you are safe. Remember, the context of this is Peter's writing to these exiles, these foreigners and exiles that were scattered all over Asia Minor, and they were scattered because of a persecution. So they lived in a very hostile environment. Now, we don't live in a physically hostile environment, but I think intellectually, we live in a hostile, Christians live in a hostile place in, in, in today's kind of maybe coastal world or bi-coastal if you live in east coast or west coast, extremely. It is intellectually hostile. So what do you do? And Peter's like, then when you come into community, it should, be a, it should be a refuge community. It should be a community of refuge where your soul finds rest in this community. When you come into it, you are able to breathe. When you come into it, you know that those in the community are kind towards you. They actually go out of their way to understand your side of the world. They don't just like want to disagree with everything you say. They enter into your world and go, I can see how you see that. But then let me add this. Like they're agreeable. They're like-minded. You know those in your community are loving and they're patient and they're agreeable and you don't have to keep your guard up all the time. I mean, you might not agree on everything and that's true but you've majored on the majors. Loving Jesus, loving one another well. You've majored on that. You're like, you know what's the most important thing here? That we love Jesus together and we love each other. That's what we're gonna major on. And that your community became a community of refuge. This is what it's talking, now, this is what it looked like for the early, early church, the, first, like, the church just started. And this idea, by the Spirit of God, they were agreeable. They were like-minded. And this is what it says. Now, it didn't, this isn't like, um, this is what's interesting about what I'm about to read in Acts chapter 4. What's interesting is that there was not a command necessarily to be like-minded. It came out of the Spirit of God working in the church, and they were like this. And then later on, it became a thing like, no, you have to, that's, that's what the Spirit desires. We have to be that. Look at how they were like-minded in the book of Acts, the very beginning of the church. The first church first started. Um, if you have a Bible, flip over to Acts to the left. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Let me read this to you. Acts 4, 32. It says this. You there? Verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. They were like-minded and even like-hearted. They had the same mind and the same heart. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. There was no needy person among them. Why? Because God's power was at work. How? Through their like-mindedness, sharing. That there was no needy person among them for from time to time, those who own land or houses sold them. That is so radical. And they brought the money to the, from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. This is insane. They were so like-minded 
In that, in, that, in that day, notice that because of the vast socioeconomic disparity in the early church, and there was a huge disparity, socioeconomic disparity, what it meant for them to be like-minded, the way they worked it out, they're like, there's a disparity. There's someone here who has a house and someone here who is completely homeless, and they can't feed themselves. And there's people that are coming in the church that have no power, and there's people that come in church that have all kinds of power. So what it means for us to be like-minded is what we're going to actually do is sell our stuff so everyone has, who has need doesn't have any need. That's how we're going to be like-minded. They were harmonious, financially harmonious. They shared their stuff. Now, back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter is, this is called an abstract principle. What that means is that we have to apply it. We have to apply this, but... We have to apply it to our cultures in various ways. So being like-minded today in today's society might not mean the exact same thing it did in Acts. But the principle still applies. We are to be like-minded. So let me, let me throw something out here. This is, you, you could, we, we could, we could um, talk about, discuss this. Like if, in your community groups, you guys should probably discuss this. Let me just throw something out here. We are to share our stuff. That's a given. We are. Absolutely. We're to share our stuff. But maybe... In our society today, there isn't as much like it was then. I mean, there's still a reality of this in San Francisco, but not as much as in the first century. There's not as much of a, of a socioeconomic disparity. There are some outliers, but for, for the most part, not really. We are to share our stuff, but maybe a bigger deal in Western individualistic San Francisco. Maybe the bigger deal for us the better thing to do to be like-minded would be to share our time, our commitments, and our decisions. You're like, oh no, I'd rather give my stuff. <laughs> I'd much rather give my stuff. I would too. I would, mu I would much rather give you like a pair of my shoes than like share a decision with you. Like completely. Like no, have all the shoes. I I'm not gonna talk about decisions with you though. Like we won't agree. Like, what if, we, what if we committed ourselves to a community that said to each other, who needs my time this week? Is anyone in this, this, this community my time? What commitments can I make to you this week? And someone said, I, 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 need, I need your time. I need like four hours of it doing this. Okay, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna commit to you. That's, that's harmony. It's, I mean, I think in our socioeconomic kind of Bracket, it's probably easier to write a check. It's easier to go, hey, just have my stuff. Not always, but sometimes. But my time? What if we committed to ourselves to making decisions in our communities and said, I'm going to submit this decision to this group. Let's be like-minded in this decision. I have a really, really major decision coming up. And I want to be like-minded. So what do you guys think? Should I move? That, like, talk about... That's, that would, if, if we were writing the book of Acts today, it would probably say something like that in San Francisco. And then they were, they had the same heart and the same mind and they made their decisions. They weren't individualists. They made their, they submitted their decisions to each other. They submitted their time to each other. And they made commitments to each other and they kept them. And it would be an exclamation point. Like, oh my gosh, the spirit of God worked powerfully among them. It would be like that. Like, if we just did the same thing, like we shared our stuff, that, I don't think that uh, that apologetic, like, they share, everyone. I mean, we have, there's sharing apps. I mean, that's not, that's not that hard. Sharing stuff is not that hard. But what is radical in an individualistic society, what is radical is sharing our commitments, 
sharing things like our decisions and sharing our time. Now, I say this, I know it's radical. I know that. This might even seem a bit idealistic. But this is what, this is what I, this is maybe a way to release pressure. Um, have you ever, did, when you grew up, did you ever do karate uh, uh, or like taekwondo or anyone? One person in the back did. Like a lot of you did. Wow, okay. Don't mess with those people, by the way. Um, or go to lunch with them, either one. Um, and when you went to, um, uh, when you went to, or, or, or maybe today equivalent would be yoga, right? Um, you go, when you go in, not really, not that yoga's like, what? Um, I'm not saying that. I'm saying, uh, my point is that when you go into a studio, you practice it, right? It's a practicing studio. So when you go into karate, you practice karate. Or when you go into taekwondo, you practice it. And you learn the disciplines of it. And you work it out in a practice studio. When you go to yoga, you practice it. Like, you don't nail it the first time. You're practicing. You're learning how to get, like, into, you know, Warrior Two or whatever. You're, like, practicing. I'm like, oh, I didn't do that today. I'm going to try it next. You practice it. Now, I, what if we thought of our communities as practicing communities? This is what Peter had in mind, by the way. Um, N.T. Wright points out that what Peter is talking about here is you have now you're, you had an old life, and now you're brought into a new life, and now the new life that you have is with the family of God, and in this family of God, there are certain practices and ways that you're to live. Now, figure out now in this community, this safe community, how to learn how to live in a different way, how to live an alternate way of life. So, you probably were not that good at being like-minded. Well, practice like-mindedness in your community. Just practice it. Like, hey, I'm still practicing this thing. I'm not really good at like-mindedness. I'm like my own person, I'm individual, I like, I like autonomy, I don't like, and so work it out then, practice. I'm not really sympathetic. Well, pr- you know what the perfect place to practice sympathy is in your community. Practice love, I'm not really good at loving other people, like really loving them, well practice it in your community. Like let these be like communities, practicing communities, where your community group is way that you practice these virtues that you commit to, let's practice together like-mindedness. And let's try to figure it out. And let's, con- let's confess when we're not being like-minded. Let's give each other grace when we're not being like-minded. Then when someone's not being like-minded, we can, com- we can give them compassion now. And now we're practicing compassion. And what happens is that community becomes really, really good at living the Christian life that that community then learns how to live all of their life that way. When you practice inside of a, a, a safe community what it means to be loving, you your, your heart is retrained, and then when you get out into the workplace or whatever, you're, you're learning. I've learned it. I've learned in my family, in my community, how to be like-minded. And when I get out here, I know how to practice it. And when I, I've learned how to be compassionate, and when I get out here, I know how to put on compassion. Like, com- this is what our communities are for. We're to be practicing communities. We should be practicing these things in communities. Now, it does seem idealistic. However... In order for the Christian community to really be a place of support and refuge, we have to keep reading. Because they do fail, but look at what it says. Be, we're not gonna hit maybe like-mindedness in one day. It doesn't take a while. Patience, love, kindness. But look at, be, look at what it says next. Be, Peter says, be, after be like-minded, be sympathetic. Love one another, or brotherly love. That's that, the word there literally is brotherly love. Be compassionate and humble. Sympathetic, love, compassion, humility. Normally we think of sympathy, when we think of sympathy, we think of it as pity. Pity that we offer someone who has a moment of weakness or someone who's inferior to us. It's sympathy that drives us to care for or do something for victims, and that is a beautiful thing. However, this word in the first century, 
This word in the first century, though it does mean taking pity on people and showing them kindness, it was a specific word that Peter used here. And this, this word, the, the specific word that he used meant that, you, that it was the kindness that you would show a family member. It's a specific word. It's the kindness that those in the Roman society were expected to show family members. It's familial kindness. Actually, the terms brotherly love and compassion, so Peter says, sympathy, brotherly love, compassion, these words were used in the first century with a reference to kinship obligations. All these words had overtones of family on them. So these are the words that you would show your family. Your brother, you show them love. Your sister, you'd show them love. Compassion and sympathy, you'd show to your family. They were, they were family or kinship obligation words. They were used when you committed your life to a family or you were in a family. So what Peter is saying here is that we, the church, this is actually pretty subversive and radical, the church is a family. We are actually a like-minded family. So not only are we a community of, like a practicing community, the church is a, is a community of obligation. We are bound to one another. We are a community of obligation. We have to show sympathy with one another because we're obligated to one another. We're family. We have to show love to one another because we are obligated to one another. We are family. Now, here's the funny thing. Here's the word brotherly love. It's up on the, up on the screen. Brotherly love. Okay, we see that word, and it's a funny thing. When we see this word, brotherly love, we see that term. The emphasis is on love, right? Brotherly kind of goes away. Like, why do we even have to use the word brotherly? Let's just get rid of brotherly. Let's just say love, right? Like, brotherly doesn't really come into the equation. When we see, when I say, hey, guys, let's treat each other with brotherly love, you focus, I focus, we focus on love. And love is a great, 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 great word. And that word, all, what it means in our society is affection. It means feeling, love. I love this. It's all about feeling. So here's the problem. The problem with that is this. If I don't feel love for you anymore, then I don't want to love you. If I don't like you, I'm not going to love you. So my feelings are tied to brotherly love. So if I don't like you, I don't love you. And that's what we think. So, but... What if, let's just say, what if we move the focus from love to brotherly? And what if brotherly became the focus of that phrase? What if we focused on the person? What if love became about the person and the resolve to do right by them? What if I'm not abstractly loving someone by like feeling, but what if I picture John from my community group and go, I'm going to love John? I'm going to do right by John. I'm going to do right by whatever, who, add whoever's name is in there. I'm going to do right by them. And so that person becomes the focus to show compassion to that person. They're not some disembodied thing. They're a person. I'm showing love to them, compassion to them, sympathy and care to them. Commentator Karen Job says exactly this. She says this in her commentary on this passage. She says, the emphasis on brotherly love often falls on love rather than on brother which sometimes leads to a misunderstanding that affection is more important than the resolve to do right by others with whom we are substantially related by faith in Christ. We are related. 
We are brothers, we are sisters, and what we're supposed to do is not abstractly go, I feel for you. We're, expect, we're supposed to look at the person and go, I'm gonna do right by you. How can I do right by you? How can I serve you? How can I have compassion for you? So it's not this disembodied affection anymore, it's action. It's love toward you. This is what Peter's talking about. See, what, what Peter is subversively advocating is for the family of God being communities of like-minded obligation that focuses on love for one another. Because families are communities of obligation. You didn't choose your family. Your family might be super crazy. But they're your family. You didn't choose them. You're not like, oh, I want to choose my family. You, you got them. And then this family, you don't choose it necessarily, the family of God. You're brought in it and you're obligated but this, 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 this right here, this right here, this idea of being committed to a family cuts against all the trends of our society. We don't want to be obligated to any church as a family. We want freedom. We want autonomy. There was a sociological study done a few years back by the Barna Institute, a Christian organization that does all these studies for the, around the church. And they surveyed, they basically put out a study on the typical attitudes of Christians in America today toward the local church. Here's, here's what they said about it. These are typical attitudes of Christians in America today towards the local church. Number one, they prefer a variety of church experiences rather than getting the most out of all that a single church has to offer. Okay, stop it. Don't read ahead. Overachievers, stop. <laughs> Actually, remove it. Let me stop there. Can I speak for, um, for other pastors in San Francisco? Um, not all of them, because, but some of them. I, I meet with several pastors in the city, and I, and I love them. We're about to, we, we meet often. And we talk about this a lot. And this, you think you're, 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 you're like slick, but you're not. You're not slick. Um, where you will go to one church, and then you will, you just like sample the other church's fun stuff. And you will put that under the guise of, we're all family. Well, yes, we're all family, but you've become a consumer, You've just gone, gone in like a mall. You've gone and consumed these other things in these other churches. It's not okay. No pastor, none of them, not a single one of them will go, oh my gosh, that is so great of you. No one, all, every pastor feels used. Every church feels used. Like, wait, are you contributing to that church? Are you like giving your life there? Are you bringing your gifts? Are you shoulder to shoulder with that church and community and deep, deep-rooted family? Well, no, I'm, I'm that over here, but you guys have this thing I love. And that happens with a lot of churches. And this is, just, this is just our, this is how we live. We just want a variety of church experiences. That, that and, I, and I can speak on behalf of several churches in the city, that's just not the way we want to be. That's not good for pastors. It's not good pastoring. If we were pastoring you that way, we're sorry. That's not the way that we're supposed to do that. Can you have relationships with friends with other churches? Absolutely. Are you committed and rooted in this community or a community? Then be rooted and committed there. Sorry, that was my little rant. Okay, go back up. <laughs> they think, secondly, they think that spiritual enlightenment, this is all of us, comes from diligence in a discovery process rather than from commitment to a faith community and perspective. So they think that spiritual enlightenment comes from, you know, my discovery process with the Psalms in the morning and I don't need a community to do that. I can do that by myself which is completely foreign and antithetical to anything you read in the Bible. View religion as a commodity that we consume rather than one in which we invest ourselves. 
and are transient. 15 to 20% of all households relocate each year. Now, I think that we can all agree that these are true. We've all observed them as such. A lot of us are guilty of practicing this kind of Christianity. This is the, this is the fall out of being an autonomous individual. The fallout is the church. The church, the bottom falls out of it. But let me say something. Let me just speak to, if you feel like really, really offended right now, let me speak to something here in the room. I can also say this. None of us, none of us want to behave this way. None of us want this anymore. This attitude, this sort of attitude is leaving us tired. This sort of attitude is leaving us restless. This sort of attitude is pricking and tearing at our souls and we once want to be known in a, in a deeply rooted community and we're longing for it. We long for it. That's why we go and sample. We go to this church, is, it, is this what I'm longing for? Is this what I'm longing for? Is this what? We, lo- we want it so, so bad. Because we've been sold a secular idea of individualism and it's leaving us thirsty for something beyond ourselves. We've been sold this idea of, of radical, radical autonomy and it's, it's leaving our, a hole in our soul for meaning. We might just be discovering that it really isn't good for man to be alone. There's a band, you probably know them, Fleet Foxes. And they have a, band, uh, a song called Helplessness Blues, and a friend of mine yesterday pointed this lyric out. I totally forgot about this lyric, but it's so good, I'm going to read it. He pointed this out to me uh, yesterday, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to share that tomorrow. It, this is from the song Helplessness Blues. This is how it starts, this song. I was raised up believing I was somehow unique, like a snowflake distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way you can see. And now after some time thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery, serving something beyond me. That is the cry of a secular heart. That is the cry of every single one of you that's bopping around every single place trying to find meaning. That's what you're, you're like, I was sold this thing, I'm an individual snowflake. I'm just this like unique. And you think this, this is how we grew up. No one is like me. How lonely is that? No one's like you? How lonely must you feel if your parents sold you that crap? There's no one like you in all the world. And you're like, there's no one like me. (laughs) If there's no one like me, how can I be known? If there's no one like me, how can I know anyone? If there's no one like me, Adam was, was brought the animals. There's no one like me. So God created someone like him. Humanity. You've been sold something that's so wrong. It's so, so, so wrong. What your soul needs is a family. What your soul needs is a community that you can stay rooted in and go, this is my community and I'm here. And I'm obligated here. Like thick or thin, hell or high water, I'm here. It's gonna, it's gonna be so hard sometimes. It's gonna be so great sometimes. Just like a family. When we grow up, we, we, we even do this in this city. We, we live alone. Even though we live so close to other people, we live alone, but we, we long to be known. We long to serve a greater purpose beyond ourselves. That's what that song is talking about. So we just won the World Series. Let me lighten the mood a little bit. So we just won the World Series. And if you watched any, any of like the storyline leading up to the postseason, it was all about team. Did you notice that? Like Hunter Pence at the very end of uh, the, the regular season gets up and does like the speech. So it was it turned, turned like um, AT&T Park into church. It was really, really 
hilarious. And just yelling, everybody's chanting back, and it's just like this huge rally. And it's all about team. Like, do you believe we need you? You need that. We need each other. We're a team. And, and then everyone, when they t- interviewed everyone, it's all about the team. It's all about the team. It's just this humble approach. It's all about the team. And, and, and even when they did the parade and they were talking about it, it was just this, this, this storyline of team. And even some players refer to the team as a family. It's all about this family. Baseball is a, is a wonderful team sport. But the loneliest, I think, of sports is tennis. <laughs> now, that wasn't meant to be a joke. I'm just being honest. Um, <laughs> about every summer, I've read it several times. Uh, I wouldn't say every summer, but I've read it several times. Um, I, I read this book. Um, I read Andre Agassi's biography. It's one of the best books I've ever read. I read it off. It is so good. And you're like, I don't even particularly like tennis. There's, so, there's man, this, if you've read it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're like, or maybe you don't like tennis. I don't know why you clapped, but I hope you read the book. Andre Agassi in his book is a tormented soul. He's very tormented. He's a troubled soul. And the opening chapters, he reflects. It starts with, it, it, <laughs> the book starts with a chapter called The End, and it ends with a chapter called The Beginning, and the storyline is so good. And he's this tormented soul, and he lets you in the first chapter on why he's such a tormented soul. He says this, It's not on the screen. I'm just going to read it to you. Tennis is a sport in which you talk to yourself. No athletes talk to themselves like tennis players. Pitchers, golfers, goalkeepers, they mutter to themselves, of course. But tennis players talk to themselves and answer. In the heat of a match, tennis players look like lunatics in a public square, ranting and swearing and conducting Lincoln-Douglas debates with their alter egos. Why? Because tennis is so damn lonely. Only boxers can understand the loneliness of tennis players. And yet boxers uh, have their corner men and managers. Even a boxer's opponent provides some kind of companionship, someone who can grapple with and grunt at. In tennis, you stand face-to-face with your enemy, trade blows with him, but never touch him or talk to him or anyone else. The rules forbid a tennis player from even talking to, to his coach while on the court. People sometimes mention uh, the track and field runner as a, as a comparably lonely figure, but I have to laugh. At least the runner can feel and smell his opponents. They're inches away. In tennis, you're on an island. Of all the games men and women play, tennis is the closest to solitary confinement. <laughs> the, I, the, I, I, okay, so you don't, you don't know that in the book. I want to cry right now. It's so good. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so it starts out like how he... He's tormented because he grew up playing tennis and he actually secretly hates this game because it's so isolating. He's so alone. And the whole book and the resolve is him finding a family. Him finding a family. Finding a family in his trainer, finding a family in his wife, Steffi Graf, finding a family in his kids, and then finally, when he finds this family, his soul's at rest, and he doesn't secretly hate tennis anymore. It ends with, he actually loves it. It's so good. It's so good. Read it. I didn't get everything away. You know about Andre Agassi. And the reason why I come back to it every year is I remember, like, my need, my, my hunger for community, my hunger for family, my desire for it. See, Peter taps into this aloneness we experience and what it means to be brought into a family, the family of God, when he says this. He says in 1 Peter 10, 
sorry, 1 Peter 2.10. He says, once you were not a people. Once you were not a people. What he's saying there is, what he means by that is once you were alone. Once you were an isolated, unique little snowflake. Once you were a person without a people. You were left to yourself. You were not a part of a family, which every human soul longs for. You were an isolated, autonomous individual floating out there into the void looking for something to attach yourself to. Like a sheep that's gone astray. That's you, he says. But now you are the people of God. But now that you've become a follower of Christ, now that you've become a Christian, it's not you asking Jesus to come into your little personal heart You have been brought into an entire new family, God's family, where in God's family there's refuge. In God's family there's obligation. In God's family it's what your soul longs for. This mutual commitment, this like-mindedness, this compassion, this sympathy, this love, this humility that's done in the community, that's practiced there. We long for it. That's what we're brought into. But we're only brought into it in Christ. He brings us into the family of God. It says right before there, he transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. Notice, every single bit of language used to describe your salvation is language into a people. You were delivered from the kingdom of darkness, a kingdom is a people, into the kingdom of the beloved son. A kingdom is a people. So when you're saved, there is mercy for your soul. There's forgiveness for your soul. But it just doesn't end there. You're not this isolated being. You are brought into a family, this family. And if we could commit ourselves to practicing community like this, being obligated to community like this, submitting to one another like this, that would become the place where your soul finds refuge in this community. And this is the place where the world will see that we love one another and then they will see the glory of God. Jesus said, God, let them be one as we are one. That the world world may know that you sent me. Let them be one as we are one. And once they're one, as we are one, the world will know who I am. This is the great apologetic to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you might inherit a blessing. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the communities in this church and I pray, God, I pray for them. I pray for us. I think what we really, really, really long for, Lord, is to be known in a community of people, in a family. God, my heart longs for that so bad, and it longs for it for these, for us together. And so would you make us one as you are one? Thank you, Jesus, that you bring us into the family of God. That once we were far off, but now we've brought near. Once we were not a people, now we are a people. Once we were people of darkness, now we are people of the kingdom of God, of light. Thank you, Christ, for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.